Introduction, Part Two of the Book of Love by Paolo Mantegazza. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. When the science of the future will permit our posterity to connect all the phenomena of nature, from the most elementary to the most complex, from the simplest motion of a molecule to the flash of the most sublime genius, in an uninterrupted chain of facts, then perhaps the first origins of love will be sought in the elementary physics of dissimilar atoms which endeavour to find each other and combine, and with opposite motion generate the equilibrium. The positive electric body seeks the negative, the acid seeks the base, and in these conjunctions, with great development of light, heat and electricity, new bodies are formed, new equilibriums obtained. It seems that nature renews her forces and, rejuvenescing, prepares herself for new combinations and new loves. And is not love perhaps the combination of two dissimilar atoms which seek each other and combine, notwithstanding all the adverse forces of heaven and earth? And in the same manner, as the molecule of potassium snatches the oxygen away from water with a great development of light and heat, is not the union of those two molecules, which we call man and woman, accompanied by a hurricane of passion, by flashes of genius, by infinite glittering of flames and ardor, do we not perceive a pandemonium of physical and psychical forces accumulating, battling and equilibrating around that point where a man and a woman are attracted toward each other, to rejuvenate the human matter and rekindle the torch of life? A particular motion, originated in the ovary and in the testis, accumulates such energy in the nervous centers as eventually to bring the masculine element in contact with the feminine, so that the generative gemulae produced in this low laboratory of two different organisms reunite in that nest which is the maternal womb, and where the fecundated egg must transform into a human being. The poet and the metaphysician may define love in whatever manner they choose. There is only one definition for science. Love is the energy which must bring in contact the egg with the seed. Without ovary and without testis, there can be no love. That forward movement, which is called generation, is so powerful as to oppose and even destroy the minor motion, that is, the preservation of the individual. And while each individual rotates, it is carried forward with a movement a hundred times more irresistible and powerful through space and time. The first motion represents the narrow life of the individual and is protected by egotism. The second is the great life of the species, and love defends it. The most superficial study of the generative function is sufficient to convince us that love is always a phenomenon of high chemistry, in which the generating atoms, in order to combine, must be neither too similar nor too dissimilar. No sooner has sex manifested itself in animals than we have in the same individual, but in two distinct laboratories, the formation of two generative elements. Sex, which at first thought appears to us as one of the deepest mysteries of life, is nothing but a laboratory which attracts the elements generated by every element of the organism, and encloses and preserves them in itself in order to pour them into the bosom of other elements, similar but not equal, generated in another laboratory, that is, the opposite sex. When the two generative laboratories are separated in two distinct organisms, it is probable that the diversity of their gemulae is greater. If an individual closely resembling each other, but of different races, we combine the generative elements, we still will probably have fecundity, while if we pass to different species, 
fecundity would be more difficult. If we pass to different genera, it will in most cases become impossible. But let us set aside the words species and genera, which in nature have not the same value as we assign to them in our museums and in our books, and let us instead take from the world of the living a handful of animals, haphazard, so that we may gather together brothers, cousins, nephews, individuals of the same or affinitive classes, genera, orders, and let us place them in line, in the order of their degrees of similarity. Should we try to couple them, or study their spontaneous loves, we will find cases of sterility in beings too similar and in beings too dissimilar. Therefore, generation moves between these two opposite poles, too great similarity and too great dissimilarity. That is the reason why a dog and a cat are sterile. They do not generate, because they are too dissimilar. Nature said to living beings, if you wish to love, be neither too similar nor too dissimilar. Let us try and discover the reason of this law. Germs that are too similar cannot concur in fecundation, or fecundate unsatisfactorily, perhaps through the same laws of elementary physics and chemistry which cause bodies to repel other bodies equally electrified, or with which they have too close a resemblance in their physico-chemical characteristics. Try the combination of sulfur and phosphorus, of iodine and bromine, and on the other hand, observe the ardent loves of chlorine and hydrogen, of potassium and oxygen. The fecundity of two different organisms is, besides an energy bearing in one direction, it is the sum of resistances, all of them equal, while two quantities, different but susceptible of being summed, give a greater number of diverse resistances and have, therefore, a greater possibility of living and resisting external enemies. An individual is the sum of many victories over exterior elements, the result of many and infinite adaptations to the ambient which surrounds it. Two individuals dissimilar, but not enough to impede generation, will bring together those adaptations and those victories through which the new creature enjoys the possibility of resistance and will meet with fewer dangers. It is much easier to explain why forms too dissimilar cannot love each other. This impossibility is one of the most powerful means of preserving the living forms, extremely varied, in those conditions which are useful to their existence. When a living being has come out of the struggles of life, when it has yielded to external agents and enemies in a certain way, it transmits itself to future generations in that form and nature which are the fruit of a long and successful battle. Precisely for the same reason, an herbivorous animal, which is the offspring of another that has gained its flesh with herbs, cannot grow and multiply except by feeding on herbs. Imagine for a moment that organs and tissues feeding on meat should be grafted onto the organs and tissues of an herbivorous animal. What disorders would not arise? A fragment of carnivorous animal closed up in an organism which has teeth to chew herbs, gastric juice to digest herbs, intestinal tube to assimilate herbs, and olfactory nerves which finds leaves and flowers delectable. The apparent stability of the species, which in fact resolves itself in a slow mutation, is nothing therefore but the unavoidable necessity for male and female to pour into the crucible of generation elements that can combine, metals that can fuse, forming a homogeneous and compact alloy. From the elementary physics of generation you may jump to the most ardent sympathies, to the juxtaposition of human characters in the nest of love, and you will see that the same law rules all in each of these facts. 
neither too similar nor too dissimilar. Love is the sum of analogous but not identical forces. It is the complement of complements. It is the square of squares. It tolerates neither subtractions nor divisions. We shall see at every step of our studies the same laws which govern generation, or the so-called physical love, reappear in the highest spheres of love. For us, love is simply one function, which, to be understood, must not be barbarously mutilated and disrupted so as to have one part of its limbs sent to the laboratory of physiology and the other left in the library of the philosopher. Love is such an energy that from the lowest grades of the most automatic instinct it ascends to the highest regions of the supersensible, and perhaps no other physical element reaches to more distant poles. Think of the shepherd of the high Apennines who loves a goat, and of Hina, who in the clutches of death wants to be brought to the Louvre to see the Venus of Milo once more. And you will have a pallid idea of the frontiers which this ardent, tenacious, violent, multiform passion called love seeks to conquer. While in the field of chemical facts generation marks the highest point of molecular chemistry, in the psychological field love reaches the loftiest summits of the ideal. Love is the force of forces. It makes its appearance when man is strongest. It vanishes when age has weakened him. Love is the joy of joys. It is at the bottom of every desire, of all riches, on every horizon of pleasure. It is always the highest aim. If we accept men who were born without gentle feelings, in every human sky love is the brightest star. It is the sun of every firmament. It is the strongest, the most human, the richest of passions. In all forms of generation, whether agamous or asexual, by ascission or by endogenesis, whether we consider the son in comparison with the father, or with far Adam, we behold the generated preserve a part of the last or of the first generator, so that the motion communicated from the first to the last generation is transmitted without interruption. Take as a starting point the atom of the Bible, or the atom of progressive evolution, the clay breathed into by a god or the Darwinian Assyria. Each one of us has still within himself a material part belonging to the first man or first father of all men, so that an immense brotherhood unites all living beings. To the divination of the poet, who beholding the flowery meadows, the forests, the swarming of animals, cries out with emotion, O oh, Mother Nature! Science answers in accord. As it contemplates a quantity of matter and a quantity of life pass from one to the other of those organisms called individuals. For every life extinguished, a new life is born. And within us, who occupy the loftiest place among all the living beings on this planet, quiver and vibrate the molecules which have passed through thousands and thousands of existences and thousands and thousands of loves. If love is the warmest and the most human of passions, it is also the richest. To its altar every faculty of the mind carries its tributes, every throb of the heart carries its fire. Every vice and every virtue, every shame and every heroism, every martyrdom and every lewdness, every flower and every fruit, every balm and every poison may be brought to the temple of love. Everything human can be carried away in the whirlwind of love and more than once man regrets that he possesses but one life to offer as a holocaust to this god. And yet this gigantic force is the least governed of all the passions. 
It would seem that before it man feels too small and too weak, and just as a savage falls on his knees before the lightning and weeps, or flees, the civilized man, even today, is terrified before the unexplored hurricane of the sovereign force, and acknowledges his powerlessness and his ignorance. In the delirium of voluptuousness and in the storm of desperation, he lets himself be carried away by a force which he considers superior to reason, too powerful in comparison with his weakness. In his codes he writes, timidly, laws which he violates every day, opprobrious punishments which the juries always cancel, and a dense fog of ignorance surrounds the temple of love, which he enters nearly always as a thief, and from which he emerges nearly always as an outcast. Our legislation on love is a wretched connubiality of hypocrisy and lechery, and as we know not how to look love in the face, we disguise it with the garments of the buffoon and the prostitute. Our laws are so perfect that many must not love, and very many cannot love, and while we all weep over the few victims of hunger, we shrug our shoulders at the hundreds of thousands who die in celibacy for not having been able to gather the straw for their nests and we laugh at the millions of celibates who know nothing of love, save masturbation and prostitution. In the presence of love we are still more or less savage, the basest brutishness before the most powerful of human forces. Yet love also should be conquered, like all other forces of nature, and without losing a fraction of its energy, or a flower of its garden, it also must be governed by science, which understands and directs all things. The lightning which prostrates the savage in the dust of fear is guided by us on the small wire of the conductor, gilds the ornaments of our women, and transmits our thoughts from one hemisphere to the other. This other lightning also, which, more powerful and more dangerous, explodes in the hurricanes of the human heart, must be studied, guided, and reduced to a live force that can be measured, weighed, and governed. Love should be the dearest, the most precious, the most powerful of civilized forces. No other passion can claim supremacy where it appears. No other can solve the sublime problem of combining the greatest voluptuousness with the greatest virtue, of generating the good of future beings through the joy of the living ones, of transmitting civilization to posterity in the spasm of an embrace. End of Introduction Part 2